Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you had not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you. Andrea, thank you for reading for us. As you come this morning, we are beginning a series in the second half of 2 Corinthians. Last week, we had a little recap of the first half of the letter. And this morning, we pick up the series from chapter 7 right through to the end of the letter throughout this term. And do keep your Bibles open at that reading, 2 Corinthians 7, 1162 on the Pew Bibles. And you also will find in the bundle you received a handout, which you might find helpful, that takes us through the outline of the next few moments as we look at God's word together, let's, let's pray for his help. Father, we thank you very much this morning that the Lord Jesus did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. He did not come for those who are righteous in their own eyes, but who know that they 
are sinners. And so we pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to understand our hearts as you understand them, that you'd help us to see who we are before you. And we do pray, therefore, that you'd help us to run to Jesus, whose arms are open to welcome us in forgiveness and in healing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, uh, in a different church family, uh, a lady joined the church family. She had been involved in a church down the road, but uh, she arrived at our church and she settled in and um, seemed very much at home. And uh, naively, I didn't really think much about why she had moved to join us. But then, as the months went by, it became clear that there was a particular area of her life that was completely out of step with the Bible's teaching, a major area of sin. And she had been challenged by the leaders of the previous church to repent, and she didn't like the challenge. And so rather than heeding the challenge, she decided to leave and joined us instead. And uh, sadly, as I look back over many years of church involvement, her example, her story is not an unusual one. Uh, We live in a culture, don't we, today, where there's a certain kind of tolerance where we are no longer allowed to question other people's decisions or opinions in life. And as that view in our culture seeps into church, we increasingly don't expect the church to be a place where we are, are challenged, where our lifestyles come under the microscope, where we're, we're encouraged to, to, to reflect and to change. And uh, today, people can find all kinds of voices that they can listen to. There's always another church down the road. If they don't like the challenge from one church, there's always somewhere else that will preach a different gospel, a different message. Or we can go online and find someone with a blog or a podcast or some author who will support our position in our stance in life. And this term, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we find that they are in danger of making the same kind of decision that lady made in that previous church many years ago. Uh, They have, on one hand, the Apostle Paul. We've been seeing that his ministry is an authentic ministry. He is a a genuine apostle, and he he speaks the true message of Christ. But his message is a a clear and firm one that uh, calls for repentance and change. He won't let the Corinthians persist in their ungodly lifestyle. And then over here, we have been discovering there are others, the super apostles in Corinth, who preach Christ, but a very different kind of Christ to Paul, their Christ has no challenge, no call to change. As the Corinthians hear these super apostles, they don't feel uncomfortable. They don't feel the need to change their lifestyle. And as they evaluate the two options, Paul with his hard message and the super apostles with their easy message, the Corinthians are in danger of of abandoning Paul and siding with the super apostles. Last week we saw Paul had written a, a severe letter to the Corinthians, we don't quite know what he said in it, but it was a letter calling them to repent. He sent Titus, his dear friend, to be the courier with the letter. And uh, we saw last week that Paul was in anguish because he hadn't heard back yet from Titus. He didn't know whether the Corinthians had taken on board his severe letter or they had ditched him. And uh, he's in agony wondering if his ministry amongst the Corinthians was to no avail. And this morning we pick up the story in 2 Corinthians 7. And as we do so, there is a question for us all to to ponder as we look at the Corinthian example. uh, The question is there in the handout. Who are are we listening to in this world? There are lots of voices around in churches, online, our friends, our family who tell us that we can stay as we are. 
We don't need to change. Just go with what feels right, with what's good for you. Uh, Don't let anyone push you around or challenge you. We can find lots of voices like that. But there is the voice of the, the Apostle Paul who speaks for Christ with a clear challenge, a clear call to repent and change. Are we willing to listen to his voice or the easy voice of the world around us? This morning, I hope we'll see why it is so good and right to follow the right example of the Corinthians as we discover how they responded to Paul's severe letter. Let's dive into the, uh, the chapter. You'll see in the handout, our first point is this, the importance of godly sorrow. We pick up the story again. We can see uh, Paul's concern for the Corinthians. Verse two, he says, make room for us in your hearts. I'm sure you've all done or or said things in the heat of the moment that we regretted. Uh, Words spoken out of turn that's caused damage to a relationship. And we look back and think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. It kind of feels like the, the relationship's been closed down because of a, a mistake we've made. But, but that's not the dynamic here with Paul because Paul hasn't spoken out of turn. He's conducted himself in the relationship with Corinthians um, above reproach, without regrets. Uh, he's done nothing wrong, verse two. And yet it seems the Corinthians are, are pulling back from him. Their hearts are closing towards him. Indeed, verse 3, Paul says at the end that they have such a place in his heart that he would live or die with them. Isn't that remarkable? I wonder who in this world we love so much that we would be willing to, if they were dying, step in alongside them and share their death with them. Maybe if we're married, our spouse. Maybe if we have children, our children, maybe. But here Paul says that he, he loves the Corinthians so much that if they were facing death, he would step in next to them and share it with them. He loves them that much. He's for them. His heart is open towards them. But they aren't towards him. But then he says, verse four, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. And we think, well, how can Paul be so confident? On one hand, the Corinthians seem to be pulling away from him, but yet he says that he's confident regarding them. Well, verse five explains. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Verse six, excuse me, verse six. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort he had, you had given him. At long last, Titus is found. Remember in chapter 2, Paul couldn't find Titus. He couldn't gather news about the Corinthians. But now Titus returns to Macedonia, and it's good news from Corinth. The Corinthians are, are on side with Paul. They, they have received his severe letter well. In fact, Paul says that they have received it with, with deep sorrow. And as they... Respond well to Titus. So Titus comes back to Paul and says, Paul, it's good news. I want us to notice the impact that this news has on Paul. And this is the point here. You see, Paul talks about his life and ministry. He says in verse four that in all our troubles, and then he says in verse five, 
this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. And if we know Paul, he's not exaggerating at this point. If you flick forwards, not now, but later on in a series to chapter 11, we'll discover that Paul was a man who suffered much. He was shipwrecked and went without food and he was often in prison and faced beatings and lashings. He knew what it was to experience hassle and hardship. And you can imagine the fears within that, what would happen in the next city and in the next city. So circumstantially, Paul meant what he says in verse 4 and verse 5. And so the before picture, before the news arrives from the, the Corinthians, Paul is a man who is upset and stressed. But then look at the after picture. Paul talks, verse 6, of, of being comforted. He talks in verse 4 about his joy. Then at the end of verse 7, he says that my joy was greater than ever. And the difference is not that his circumstances have suddenly changed. He may well still be in prison. He may still be facing a beating or without any food. But what's changed is he's heard news from the Corinthians, and it's news about their repentance, their deep sorrow, their longing to be right again with Paul and his Christ. And so we're seeing here the importance of godly sorrow. It, it makes Paul's day Even a day of terrible suffering can be transformed into a day of comfort and joy because because the Corinthians have repented. It matters that much to Paul. Just as an aside, God often does use other people to bring comfort into our lives. We at times will experience troubles and, and sadness and it's right to cry out to the God of comfort for comfort. But how does that comfort come to us? It might come to us in a sense of peace. It might come to us in a change of circumstances. But so often, it comes to us through the encouragement of a brother or sister in Christ. That's Paul's experience here as Titus arrives. The main point here is we are seeing the importance of godly sorrow. For us, personally... If the Apostle Paul were looking on at our hearts and into our church, what would cause him most anxiety would be when we don't repent and what would cause him greatest joys if he heard news of, from our small group or from our, our lives that Pete Scammon, oh, he's repented. It would make Paul's day. He cares that much about godly sorrow. And I wonder if we're in step with Paul in this one whether we agree that what matters most, what is so important is that we are a people, a church family who are quick to repent, who are deeply moved with sorrow at our sin. That is, for Paul here, the main thing. Well, I wonder if we think about a friend of ours who perhaps we know is starting to drift away from the teaching of Christ that Paul has for us in the Bible, and we're sort of wondering, is it worth plucking up the courage to say something? Because it's hard, isn't it? We don't want to put the the friendship on the line by saying to someone, I just wonder if you're struggling here. Can Can I talk to you about it? Is it okay if we get it out in the open? Because we're afraid they might push us away. But here... Paul is showing us that the right thing to do with with tender, loving concern is is to say the hard thing because godly sorrow is that important. It really matters to a Christian's life. But why does godly sorrow matter so much? Well, that takes us on to our second point. You'll see in the handout the nature of godly sorrow. 
There are some people who take way too much delight in pointing out other people's mistakes. But not Paul. So you'll see in verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I, I did regret it, I see my letter hurt you, but, but only for a little while. I sort of imagine the Apostle Paul at his desk trying to pen this letter to the Corinthians, and he's, he's scribbling and then crumpling up the draft and trying again. He's trying to get the right word, trying to, to, to explain things correctly and evenly and fairly and try not to be overly harsh, but not to chicken out of the issues and he's, he's grappling with how to put across the severity of what they're up to and then he finally writes the letter he goes to the post box and he, he drops it in and then instantly thinks oh no I, I've said too much and you can imagine thinking do I wait for the postman to arrive and try to bribe him to collect the letter out of the, the sack or do I just leave it or what should I do and he, you can see him sort of worrying about whether he's got it right it's not an easy thing for Paul this confrontation this challenge and, and he knows it'll hurt them he, he regrets that, but only for a little while. As one writer put it, like a father who watches his son being operated on, Paul rejoices not for the pain inflicted, but for the cure, which is the ultimate result. And the first result that Paul sees and that makes him happy is that their sorrow has led to repentance. Imagine next Saturday night, uh, you were down in the town for a meal and you happened to see me uh, staggering around town, clearly under the influence of alcohol. Now imagine the next day you were to come to me in my office and say, Pete, I, I saw what was happening. We need to have a talk. And you, you challenged me over the fact that I, I, was, I was in that state. I imagine I would be sorry at some level. Perhaps I would be um, sorry that I'd been caught Perhaps I'd be sorry that, that you'd see me that way or that um, I lost face or reputation somehow amongst the church family. But imagine the week after you, you went down again for a meal and you saw me again down in town in the same state staggering around. You'd have to conclude that my sorrow hadn't led to repentance. Or, or imagine uh, my sorrow was along these lines. Well, yikes, I've been caught. I must be more careful next time. Maybe I'll just drink at home now. Maybe I'll make sure I go away from town where the forward people don't hang around and then I can let my hair down. They won't see me. That's sorrow, but, but it's not sorrow that leads to repentance. You see the difference? But here, Paul can see that the Corinthian response to his hard letter was a, a sorrow that led to repentance. Repentance means a, a complete change of mind regarding the thing we've done. We no longer view that sin in a positive light as if we can't wait to get to the weekend when we can indulge that particular area and we, we look forward to it and we live for it. Uh, no, to change our mind is to now view that sin as something repulsive, that it offends God and will bring us death, not life. We think, how can I get away from it? A change of mind regarding sin. And yes, that leads to a change of conduct as well. And Paul can see the Corinthian sorrow had led to repentance they weren't trying to hide their sin or get away with it without Paul knowing it. No, they had genuinely changed their mind regarding it. We don't know what Paul said to the Corinthians in his severe letter. We don't know what particular sin or sins he was putting his finger on. And in that sense, it's, this chapter stands before us as a general pattern for all kinds of sin. We can apply it into every area of life. 
And it's a great question to be asking ourselves. If someone does point out a sin in our lives, are we simply sorry that we're caught? Or are we sorry because I've come to see my sin as what it is, a a great offense to God, something that brings death, not life? I think one way to spot whether our sorrow is leading to repentance isn't just in a change of behavior, but it's also seen in how we relate to the person who's challenged us. You know, when someone comes alongside us lovingly, carefully, and says, Pete, I need to talk to you about something, and they put their finger on it, if I pull back from them and I start to avoid them, on a Sunday I sit on the other side of the church building and I I, I don't go to small group anymore, or I, I even leave church because of their challenge, that says something about my repentance, doesn't it? But if actually the relationship grows and strengthens between the one who challenged and the one who heard, then that is a sign of repentance. And here, for the Corinthians, they, they've heard Paul's challenge. They've, they're sorry, they've repented. And actually what's happening is their relationship is strengthening, not distancing. You see how it works? That's one question for us to ask. When someone does say the hard thing to us, do we pull away from them? Or do we say thank you? The next thing we see about the sorrow of the Corinthians is that it is God as God intended it. Now look at verse 9. And yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. I think many people can assume that all kinds of sorrow is bad, that we shouldn't feel sorrowful as humans. We shouldn't live with regrets and worries in that way. And certainly many churches in this country work hard not to make people feel sad or sorrowful. Uh, Many people don't expect to come to church on a Sunday and, and feel sad because of what the preacher has said. We don't like that dynamic, do we? But there is a way to feel sorrow, which is a sorrow that God intends. Not all sorrow is godly sorrow, but there is a kind of sorrow God wants us to feel, a right conviction over our sin, a right repentance, a changing of mind. And it always uh, leads to no harm. Look at verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I think of a friend of mine, many years ago, who um, he moved in with his girlfriends. Uh, they were sleeping together. And I remember eventually plucking at the courage to ask him about it. Uh, I didn't do it very well. Um, but he didn't take it very well either. He certainly didn't repent, and he didn't change his, his decision. They, they stayed together. And uh, I remember speaking to him about it, and he said to Pete, he said, it, I'm, I just want to. I just believe this is what I want to do. This is the best thing for me at this time of my life. I'm, I'm going I'm to do it. I don't care what you think. And that's often the way with sin, isn't it? Sin seems to offer us life. It's almost as if to say no to sin is to live with regrets and to miss out. But Paul is so very clear that the one who does repent, they find salvation and there are no regrets. They are not harmed in any way. This is a great help, isn't it, to us when we think about 
saying no to sin. Maybe it is, it is a relationship, or maybe it's the internet browsing. Maybe it is alcohol. Maybe it is the gossip that we love to share. Maybe it's a, a cutting tongue we have as we cut people off in our speech. And when we do these things, it feels like life. It feels like the right thing to do. It's us. And yet Paul says, no, it's not. If we repent of it, we will not be harmed in any way. We'll have no regrets about owning our mistakes. And then Paul says, verse 10, the next thing about sorrow is that it is not worldly sorrow. Verse 10, but worldly sorrow brings death. Paul doesn't say to us what worldly sorrow is, but I guess we can conclude that it's anything other than godly sorrow. And we've already talked about one kind of worldly sorrow, being sorry that we got caught, sorry that we've lost reputation. Uh, Maybe it's the kind of sorrow where when people uh, get alongside us lovingly, caringly, we feel self-pity, we feel God at. Why are they picking on me? Everyone else does the same thing as me. Why, why, why pick me as the, as the big problem? Judas Iscariot is another example of worldly sorrow. Remember, he betrayed the Lord Jesus and then afterwards he was devastated by his betrayal and filled with remorse. He, he gave the money back that he got for the betrayal. In a sense, he was trying to undo what he had done through his own human efforts. That's a, another kind of worldly sorrow we go around trying to fix the mistakes we've made but we can't do it worldly sorrow doesn't come back to the Lord Jesus who has open arms saying you can't fix it but I have on the cross the final insight into godly sorrow is there in verse 11 Paul says see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. I think basically the the Corinthians didn't receive Paul's letter and they didn't sort of shrug their shoulders going, well, that's what Paul thinks. Rather, they were... They were cut to the heart. They, they were quick, eager to put things right, to clear the air between themselves and Paul, to be seen, to do the right thing. They were, they were alarmed. They weren't casual. They, they had a completely different attitude, and it was public and clear for all to see. And rather than thinking, what's the, the, the least I can do here to repent? They were thinking, what's the most I can do here to put it right? In other words, there were there were new attitudes at work in the Corinthians, a desire for godliness and a willingness to move away from sin. And so can I ask, what about us here this morning? When is the last time that we've been deeply sorry, wept even over our own sin? When is the last time we've allowed God's word, the message of Christ through Paul's apostle, uh, his apostle Paul, when have we allowed it to, to challenge something that we're doing? When God's word has put God's finger on our, our hearts, our lives, and we've said, yep, yeah, that's right. I've made a mistake. I've got it wrong. Or let me put it a different way. Is there anyone around us here in the church family who can make us sad with a godly sorrow? who knows us well enough, who loves us enough to say the hard thing, who with an arm around our shoulder will say, Pete, I just need to talk to you about something. You see, each of us, we're all sinners. But the question is, are we able to see that and are people around us helping us to repent well? 
Finally, on the handout, the impact of godly sorrow. One of the reasons why I think we struggle so much to be honest about our own sin with other people is that we are scared that if they knew how bad we were, they would not be our friends anymore. They would pull away from us. But in fact, the opposite is true. Look at verse 13. Paul says, by all this, we are encouraged. He means by the confession of their sin and their repentance. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. And then verse 15, speaking of Titus, and his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. It's not that Titus sort of walked in the Corinth all angry and, and big, shouting at the Corinthians, and they trembled because of him. It's not, it, no, it's more that Paul came with a letter. He was the courier, and they, they read the letter, and, and, and they, were, they obeyed what they saw in the letter. They, they accepted it with fear and trembling. And as Titus watched them repent before his eyes, he loved them. He had affection for them. And the reason why Titus had affection for the Corinthians, the reason why he was encouraged by them was not because they were morally impressive people, but rather because they owned their sin and repented. It is much better to be known as a sinner who's messed up terribly, but who has repented and been forgiven, than to be known as a morally upright person who's never truly repented and therefore not been forgiven. I read a blog recently by a pastor in the U.S. who um, struggled with addiction to pornography. A close friend of his found this out, and they talked about it, and the friend said, I think you've got to go public with it. And so the pastor announced to the church family what he'd been struggling with. And um, for a while, he had to step back from his role. A number of people did leave the church because they were shocked by uh, what he'd done. Uh, he did repent in the way that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7, he was devastated for the right reasons. His sorrow led to repentance. He did change. He was quick to put things right. And then something amazing happened in the church family over the next months, and I think a year or so, was that as before them, he applied the gospel to his heart and life, as he accepted repentance, as he was honest that he had made mistakes, other people began to realize that they could also be honest about their own sin. And um, encouragement cascaded down to the church family as People after people, were, they were open about their mistakes and they were able to apply the gospel to each other's lives and they were able to, to build each other up. And what happened was that actually um, the, the, the church family were encouraged by the leader and the leader by the church family. And actually what the net result was that the, the affections between them grew remarkably. The church jumped forward in the, the gospel clarity as they loved one another and worked through the sin together. And that's the picture we have here in 2 Corinthians 7, that as God's people don't hide their sin but are honest about it, encouragement cascades through the church family. Affections grow. I find this (laughs) so liberating. What a difference it would make to us here at Fullwood if we really believe this. In our small groups, uh, even now as we um, have time over coffee uh, chatting about what's going on in our lives, 
if we were convinced and knew that actually the way to have people like us more and to grow in our affections for one another was not to hide our sin but to be honest about it, wouldn't it transform how we use our time together talking and the things we talk about? Something for us to think about in small groups. We'll be studying 2 Corinthians 7 in a week or so in our small groups. And I wonder, could we be that person who moves the prayer requests away from the sort of superficial and the out-there-ness of life into our hearts and says, you know, I'm that person struggling with whatever. That's me with alcohol at night when no one sees. That's me with the pornography or the sexual morality. I'm struggling. I know it's wrong. I, I repent. Help me. I think we'd find a, a cascading of encouragement, a depth of affection we perhaps have never experienced. I know in my own life, in small groups gone by, the ones that have been the most um, encouraging to me have been the ones with the greatest honesty over sin. And I just wonder if this term at Fullwood, this can be a mark of our small groups, that we repent with a godly sorrow. And as we watch our brothers and sisters in Christ repent, so we repent and so we are encouraged and they are encouraged and our affection grows. Who are we listening to? Many people will tell us that we're okay. Nothing needs to change. But to stick with Paul, to stick with his challenge over sin, to stick with his call to repentance, well, it means to find life, life with no regrets, a life of forgiveness, a life of encouragement, a life of growing affection. May it be our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who did not come for the healthy but for the sick, who did not come to call the righteous but the unrighteous. And so, Father, we thank you there is hope for each one of us. We thank you for his open arms ready to receive any one of us, no matter what we've done, no matter who we are. We thank you that at the foot of the cross we find a covering for our sins, a forgiveness for whatever we've done. And so help us to come back, Father. Please help us to be a people who are quick to repent and who are quick to find life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.